Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our American Dreamers series. And always, it's sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Job Creators is hard at work trying to promote policies that help and aid Main Street businesses across this country. Big businesses are well represented in Washington, D.C., and often they're trying to thwart the efforts of small ones. And big versus small is a big theme on this show as is up versus down, and always we're fighting for the little guy and for those small business owners across this country on Main Streets trying to turn their little businesses into bigger ones. And today, our own Alex Cortez brings us the story of someone that you likely know, my pillow founder, Mike Lindell, but you likely don't know his full and remarkable story. People always say, how ironic, you were a cocaine addict and you invented something to sleep. In 2008, um, my dealers, they did an intervention on me. I get downtown Minneapolis and all three of them are in the room. I go, what are you guys doing here? Now I'm in a worst part of Minneapolis in, in the one guy's apartment, in Joe's second apartment. I said, you guys know each other? I'm up for 14 days or, you know, they said it was 19, it's 14. <laughs> and uh, the one guy says, he goes, he goes, what am I here for? And he goes, he goes, well, Mike's been up 19 days and we're shutting him off. And, and uh, I said, I've only been up 14. And he says, you've been with us the whole time. You know, they all, they all you know, knew I hadn't slept. And the one guy leaves, he says, he ain't getting nothing from any of my people or me. And he was just disgusted and left. And they, before he left, though, he goes, you made a promise to us. Because all the time when I'd be doing drugs and stuff, I would always promise them this is a platform that's going to help. When I quit, I'm going to come back and, they, and help everyone, you know, get out of this horrific addiction and everything. There were many times I was in crack houses or bars, whatever, and I would talk about Revelation, which I read about when I was ever in jail. You know, every time I was in jail, I'd read the Bible. About the only time I would, you know. And so I'm telling these guys, well, they would quit that day, the next day. Like 28 people quit all through my life. I'm going, well, what did I say? And they go, I don't know, but it sure made sense. Well, normally you would think it's a hypocrite. Yeah, this is really bad. Give me another line, you know. And and they would they would listen. But all that time, it was me telling them, trying to convince myself, you know trying to convince myself whether it would be Jesus or whether it would be to get off the drugs. It was me trying to convince myself. So anyway, these guys are in the middle of this intervention thing and the one guy kicks the other guy, Joe, out of his own apartment and he sits there in a the chair next to me, says, how much you have left? And I had, I don't know, enough to probably uh, last an hour or so. And he sits there and, I, and now I, I run out and I'm scraping the pipe. Anybody that's on crack out there, you're scraping the residue out of the pipe and re-smoking it and trying to, then you're looking on the ground all over the carpet trying to find pieces you may have dropped over the last few days. And it's horrific. And then uh, anyway, I look over and he's asleep. So I head on down to the streets. I'm the only white guy down there. I'm, and they're going, you ain't getting nothing from me. You're not getting nothing from me. And, and I mean, all these things they're saying, I'm going, how do they know it's me? And all, my buddy, Joe, that he just, he goes, yeah, he goes, Mike didn't realize we told him, you know, if a, if a crazy white guy comes down with a mustache, you know. <laughs> so Joe just told this story the other day, and he, because he works for, now he's a Christian, he works for my company. And he, so anyway, I get back to the room, and I defeat it, and I get in there, and, and uh, he's sitting in the chair, and he says, uh, how'd that work out for you? And I said, I was so mad, and I said, you know, it was like 2.30 in the morning, 3 in the morning. And he goes, he goes, give me your phone. He says, you're gonna take, you're gonna take this picture. You told us you're gonna write a book. You're gonna need this for your book. It's like, think of someone on 14 days in a mugshot or whatever, but it times that by five, you know. 
Mike believes that his drug addiction was all because of his parents' divorce. 100%, 100%. Everything in childhood, everything in childhood, trauma, everything affects it, manifests to addictions, manifests to personality disorders, a divorce, but a divorce, a fatherlessness, it affects everybody. This was not known back then. I mean, it was very rare, you know. My mom and dad divorced when I was seven. I was nine days into second grade, brought to a new school. Um, I was the oldest child, so I was babysitting at seven. It was uh, to fit into the new school. I, you know, I did a lot of crazy things to, you know, climbing out a moving bus window to show off. And uh, I worked at a drive-in the movie theater. And the drive-in movie theater was voted the best job to have in the 1970s. One time I remember climbing up the back of the screen and on these little rungs, and me and my buddy that worked there were gonna moon the crowd. And we stand up there, we're 160 feet off the ground, and I'm afraid of heights, we hang onto the screen, and now I couldn't get back up, and I'm gonna fall to my death, and my, and my clothes fall off, my pants fall off, so he's helping me trying to get back up, and he gets me back up, and I just petrified climbing back down. Of course, the police were waiting at the bottom, and they're going, and this is the 1970s, they're going, he goes, uh, my manager's there, he goes, these guys work here. He goes, oh, this, you know, and the guy, they go, you get back out there, don't do that again and get your clothes. I mean, that was it. But you look back now, I'm going, you know, all those people watching, he goes, is that part of the movie, you know? And uh, I did a lot of different things like that. And I know a lot of it was, uh, was out of boredom, you know, um, just things to do. I wanted, you know, just excitement, even though I, even though I get myself into trouble, it was exciting and it was challenging getting out of trouble, you know? <laughs> Mike went on to college, although he didn't know why. I didn't know what I wanted to be. I talked about maybe being a lawyer, you know, and all these different things, but I didn't know what I wanted to be, and it was like, that was the thing to do, go to college. And I had, I, I didn't go to class. I went to class twice. I was working two jobs. My roommate's going, uh, what are you even here for? And I would just go take the test and still get C's at not even doing anything. And that was the year of the uh, Iranian uh, crisis, the hostage crisis. And as soon as that happened, I used it as an excuse. I'm out of here. The you know, world's coming to an end, or whatever. I'm, I'm going to go have fun. Why is God? You know, I just thought it was a waste of time. I mean, I'm going. It's a repeat of high school. These things in my whole thought process. Why do you have to go four years of this um, general college and then to be a, a doctor or a lawyer, or whatever you want to be? And that bothered me. I'm not going to sit here and waste my time. That's the way I thought. So he put his attention elsewhere. Working at the grocery store, I got heavy into illegal sports betting. And I uh, was betting with some very bad people on sports and I ended up owing them a lot of money and they came to my trailer and left a note. He said, if you don't pay by tonight, things are gonna get very physical. That night I went to work at the grocery store and I told my manager, I said, Lenny, I said, if." If anybody comes through the door here and looks like they might be in the mafia or whatever, looks like he's, I say, we say Mike telephone line three. We only had two telephone lines. I wasn't even there three minutes. And I said, and I hear Mike telephone line three and out the back door I went and I went and got their money the next morning and paid them. Little things like that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and more on this remarkable story, Mike Lindell's story here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. We return to our American Dreamers series, this time Mike Lindell. And we return at this point. He's dropped out of college. He's working at a grocery store and for the owner's son, who was his manager. I had been uh, fired. It was union. I'd been fired I don't know how many times the union got my job back or, or his dad did. And uh, it would always be over stuff that uh, I didn't like his rules. And he goes, if you don't like it, you know, get your own company someday and make your own rules. And there were so many things I didn't like as an employee back then. And I've, I've changed a lot of that now to my own company yeah. where to make things better. And he, he said the, the final the thing he did that where he finally fired me, I was, I was on five different schedules. And one of them I knew I was probably on, but I didn't want to look at it because I was seeing my cousin that I hadn't seen in years. <laughs> And uh, anyway, the next day I come in and he's working to me. He says, you've been suspended indefinitely. And I said, I don't, what does that mean? I, I like, like, you know, I didn't realize that you're done, you know. I didn't know what the words meant. And uh, so I said, yeah, we'll see about this. So I went to his dad and he, say, he looked at me. He says, Mike, I'm not, I'm not getting behind you this time. He says, you're destined for bigger things. He says, you're going to look back someday and see this was meant to be. And he says, you can't be a lifer here, even though, and, and they had both told me I'm one of their best employees, but I just had problems. And uh, I'll never forgot them words. I looked back and it wasn't too long looking back going, well, you know, while wow, that had to happen, or I might still have been there for years later, you know. But it would take more than one incident to really kick in Mike living a real life. My fifth year reunion with my class, everyone's now is out of the college. They get these amazing jobs. They've started families, or they've kept with the same company since high school. In my mind, they were way ahead of me. And it was very, it was bothering me inside. And then it was just uh, going, wow, everybody's ahead of me. And I'm doing stuff to show off. And I'm, you know, I got into, you know, I was a card counter. Then I took a card counting class, professional card counter. But I hadn't even started it yet or whatever. I just threw it at the class. So I'm, I'm bragging it at the reunion about skydiving with a parachute not opening and my car accidents and my, you know, card counter, things that they've never seen or the mafia coming after me, you know, so I'm blowing their minds. And so we don't get on the topic of, uh, yeah, how you doing for work? How you doing? Uh, you know, what are you doing, Mike? How many kids you got? How many, know, how's your family? You know, I'm just completely putting up this wall, you know, for these other things. And so they're all thinking I'm nuts basically. But it was a very, it was, that starting there was a very much a driver, and it was like I, there was a lot of. Now it started to be shame, you know. I'm going, you know, this is, this is not who I can be. And then I prayed. I said, you know, God, all I want is to meet the right woman and have, you know, kids and and uh, you know, be the the white picket fence, so to speak. And then God brought that all to me and handed it to me on a silver platter. Until Mike jeopardized his answered prayer. By then I was a very functioning cocaine addict too. I look back and I'm going, oh, it was perfect. Well, no, there was a lot of dysfunction, even though it's hard to, for the addiction to, to hide it all the time. The kids didn't even know then. That's how good I was. I mean, it was a lot of work hiding the, the cocaine and then, the, and then crack. The kids didn't know, okay? Even like neighbors, let's give our kids, you know, send our kids over there because we were the fun, you know, this is back in the, you know, when they were younger and was with cocaine. But then when the crack came on, that took us down fast when the cocaine turned into crack. And, and the kids, 
My daughter at that time, when we, we got right when it all kind of blew up, uh, she says, we're very dysfunctional family. I go, I don't know what that means, but don't ever say that again. We're not dysfunctional. It's a swear word. What do you mean? What? It sounded just horrible. I didn't know what it really, really meant, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so that don't sound great. But I lost it all. You know, I eventually lost it all. And in the midst of a lot of this dysfunction, Mike was already running my pillow. I tried every pill. Even when I was 16 years old, I bought one of my first paychecks, went to buy a pillow at that grocery store I worked at. This teenager spent $70 on a pillow. That would be $287 in today's money for a pillow. So I spent the most expensive pillow thinking it would be the best. It was a down pillow and it was the worst because, you know, I know now they just sell us air. I mean, I mean, how can that be? It feels good, down it goes, but I couldn't return it. That I do remember. They would not let me return that pillow. But then throughout my life, I'm trying different pillows and I always had problems with sleep and wake up in the morning with headache, neck ache. But most of these sleep interruptions are not being able to get to sleep right away. So in, in 2004, I had a very clear dream of the name, my pillow, and I wrote my pillow all over the house and, and connecting the Y and the P and, and you know, these logos and I'm going, that sounds really corny, you know, um, but I go, well, where's my pillow? You know, I mean, if you, it's hard for you to think back now because there's my everything and it was because of my pillow got big, everybody took up the my's, but my daughter came upstairs and there was, she looked and there were pieces of paper written all over and Lizzie says, uh, she gets a glass of water, she, I don't know, she's 11 years old maybe, and she said, what are you doing, Dad? And I go, I go, I'm gonna invent this pillow. And I, and I realized I hadn't even got the, you know, what, what it's gonna be made of or what it's gonna do. It's gonna be the best thing ever, I've seen it, and, and this is gonna be called my pillow. And she looks at all these pieces of paper, she goes, that's really random, Dad, and she went back downstairs. Well, then the kids said to their mother at the time, when's dad going to get over this pillow thing? And uh, he says, oh, it's just a phase. It'll be, it'll be over. And I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't doing anything. I'd sold my I'd little bar and restaurant. So my total focus was on this pillow now. Well, then I still had to figure out the material. So we tried over 94 different kinds of foams and fills to put in there. My one son, Darren, and I, who's now managing 1,100 or 1,200 employees of the manufacturing. That's what he does now. But he's like nine or 10 years old and every day we'd get home from school and we'd try different kinds of stuff on the deck and the foam would fly all over the neighborhood and we tried little machines to get to work and finally we get it and it worked. Once we had the pillows all made, we had mortgaged our house, everything, and we had no money left but we had like 300 pillows and I went into the first pillow, I walked into a, it was a bed, bath and beyond, I'll just say the name, in Bloomington, Minnesota, I go in there, I said, I got the best pillow ever. I said, this pillow is going to change, you know, change, you're going to sell more of this than anything. It helps this, helps you sleep, blah, blah, blah. And where, where's your buyer? Who's your buyer? Where's the manager? And he looks at me, he goes, you need to leave. And I'm going, the guy just had all this passion, you know? And I'm going, what do you mean I need to leave? I said, I want to talk to your buyer. And I learned right away. And I started calling on other stores and everybody, it was the same shutout. My brother-in-law's brother said, Mike, why don't you do a kiosk? And I said, what's that? How do you spell kiosk? And then we did this kiosk, and I had a little sign, a stencil, where I put on family-owned and operate. I colored in the, the stencil. And the other one I put, chiropractor recommended. And she goes, his then wife. We can't have this. She goes, someone can sue us. I said, 
I gave one to a chiropractor, our friend, you know, and he loves it, you know. But it was way far, you know, here's a mall and here's this in a mall. It just was almost too corny, you know what I mean? Almost too real. But I did, we did sell about 80 pillows. And the one day, obviously we lost, uh, I don't know, like $15,000 because it's very expensive to have a kiosk on November and December. And, but one guy, he came up and he said, hey, you have a, do you have a card? And I go, I don't have business cards. I, I go, oh, I'm all out. I said, here, and I gave him my number. And in January of that year, now kiosk was almost, you know, a complete failure, basically. I borrowed money from my ex-bookie to buy Christmas presents that year. And by the way, the reason he was my ex-bookie, he said, if you quit gambling, I'll borrow you money. I mean, that, I mean that's, uh, you know, he cared. <laughs> so this guy called me in January and he says, are you the guy that invented this pillow? The one guy I gave my phone number to. And I go, yeah. And he goes, this pillow changed my life. He says, it is a miracle. And he was all about that. I'm going, okay. And, he, and I'm excited hearing his, you know, not worrying about where I am at, that this is, I'm going, I was just so happy for him that it helped him. And he goes, I run the Minneapolis Home and Garden Show. Would you like a spot in there? And I go, and, I, and I'm thinking to myself right away, well, the kiosk didn't work. And I'm going, I go, well, maybe there's more people or something, you know? And I'm going, sure. Well, I didn't have money. And, and uh, so of course I had to borrow money to get into there. But then um, I go into that Home and Garden Show. But what I did is I got behind that booth. I could sell. And once I got behind her, it was, it was like, wow. And as I'm seeing people, they would literally come back the next day. So many people after that first day go, this is a miracle. And the same thing the guy said. Now I'm feeding off this passion and I'm just, it was like amazing where that I realized I could sell and I could sell and help people. And I sold out that four days, sold out. I was, and I'm going, wow, I can, this is where I'm going to be. I can support my family in spite of everybody turning me down. So I started doing home shows and fairs and got in the Minnesota State Fair. We blew it out of the park. We're still there. And as they say, the rest is history. But that's a tad bit blasé for this story. There were more trials to come. And the story of Mike Lindell, an American Dreamer story, as good as any we've done. Where will you hear the rest of the story here on Our American Stories? Turn to the life story of my pillow founder, Mike Lindell. I had this mask on, and probably from when from the divorce from childhood. I always had to have. That's when I got a hold of cocaine. It was so easy. I, everything I did, I had to be on cocaine to be able to talk to people and be able to have my confidence because I have this unworthiness inside of me that a lot of people have from you know from different things that have happened. It's an unworthiness, and now when I quit all my drugs and everything. That was, it's been quite a journey to where now, I mean, if you'd have told me I would be speaking in front of people or doing a commercial, I would have said, there is no way. In fact, I did a little human interest story once at a local station. I was still on drugs at the time, it was 2000. 
five or six, and this little public access station in Minneapolis, I came down there and she goes, uh, um, hey, this uh, host he was going on, she says, you want to go on his show right now? I want you, I go, I'm not going on the show. And she goes, and she goes, no, I want you just the way you are at the home shows. And I said, well, I'll come back in an hour because I want to go get my drugs, right? So, and she goes, no, go on right now. So she talks me into going on. Now, I was so petrified. Anybody that knew me said, you didn't have drugs, did you? And anybody that didn't know me said, what, is he on drugs? You know what I mean? Because I was so, like, I was all over the, I've never been so nervous. I was just couldn't even talk. And I never forgot that. And I'm going, well, if you'd have told me then, oh, you, you don't need all this and you're going to be an amazing, you know, speaker and all this stuff. I'm going, okay, that ain't going to happen. <laughs> And yet, there was one place in Mike's life where he didn't need the drugs. Where he was, home. Interesting with the home shows. Um, you know, I, I noticed one thing when I was behind that table and people came up. They had a reason for me to talk to them. Now, if I left behind the booth, I didn't have to have drugs. That was the only, it was like a phenomenon. Now, if I went out to smoke cigarettes outside the door and there's three people there, I wouldn't even go near them. I'd have to, because I wouldn't want to talk to them. You follow me? I wouldn't want to talk to them. So it'd be, when I was behind that, behind that table, talking about my pillow, I was in a, it was like a, you know, this amazing new thing where I could talk to people. And so I didn't need that. But obviously if I had cocaine, it would be, it would be you know, the same. But what I noticed, I could have the same passion with, with the cocaine or without, only in one spot behind that booth. Once I left that booth, I mean, it's like walking into another world. I'd walk, if I'm in the, I'm, and I have to talk to you and you're the next booth over and we're gonna talk about the weather, it's not happening. I'm clamming up, I'm avoiding, I'm going, hey, yeah, we'll talk to you later. I didn't know what to say. I was very socially stunted in that respect where I probably have the social skills of a 12-year-old. The home shows were the one place in Mike's life that was certain. It was his world, his pillow, not the uncertain world outside those doors where he was damaged by his parents, the drugs, and an unknown future. The shows were the place where he could feel that he was a positive force in this world. For me, I didn't have money. It didn't matter if I had money. I, would, I had a skill. I could go out and get money. If I borrowed money, I would pay you back double because I couldn't, I couldn't accept anything from anybody. I have another wound where I don't accept. I'm a giver, but I can't accept, which I've worked on. You know, I can't accept if we were gonna, if we were gonna go to lunch, guess what? I'd have a hard time you buying me lunch. That's the way, you know, I am, and that's a wound. That's actually, it's not a healthy thing either. It's able to accept is also uh, just as good as blessing someone. But I couldn't accept, especially back then. If you and I were doing drugs, I'm not taking some of your drugs, you're taking mine, you know. But to be able to be in that pillow show and to see people coming up, I just felt like God gave me the idea for the pillow in the first place. I'm going, wow. I wouldn't get depressed because of that. It was like a constant feed of people going, this is amazing. You know, I had this with my neck and this and I'm getting sleep now. I knew it was such a divine solution. I could have sat and just helped people forever and never got, I wasn't thinking like, okay, I'm gonna make millions of dollars. My thought was always, I'm gonna help millions of people. There's a difference. But to reach his fullest potential in helping people, there was just one person that he had to help first. 
himself. It was March of 2008 when he was brought to that intervention by the three biggest drug dealers of Minneapolis, of all people. That might have woken some people up, but not Mike yet. His Christian faith was always there, but it floated in and out of his heart. He grew up in a non-denominational Christian church and never had a real relationship with Christ. An interesting thing happened a week after that um, little intervention. I'm sitting all by myself at this place I was living, and I get a phone call. Now, remember, I, we talked about that little public access station. That's on, and that lady was a nice Christian lady. She would air it just every now and then, you know. And I would get phone calls of people wanting to buy pillows then, you know. So it was helping me out. And, and uh, well, that night, it's about 9.30 at night, and the phone rings. And I answer, and, and I'm up doing, you know, of course, I'm still up for probably two, three days. And she says, you know, I, I'm are you the guy i seen on Channel 6. And uh, I said, yeah. She says... Well, she says, God, God, I prayed and God told me to call you and say what you're doing is so important to the kingdom. Can we pray about it? And I said, okay, so we're praying. About a half hour goes by and she goes, I say, you know, goodbye. And I still have her name, by the way, for this, you know, the proof that this happened. About another hour goes by and another lady calls up. And this never had happened, okay? I really got one call to buy a pillow. And she calls up, she says, are you the guy seen on Channel 6 that invented this pillow? And I said, yeah, she goes, well, I haven't bought one, and, and, but she said, um, I was going to call and see if it's okay to pray with you. She said, and what you're doing is so important to, the, to God. And I'm going, okay. And so we pray for about an hour. That was a long one. And we prayed, and I talked to her. I had nothing. You know, I'm doing lines of cocaine. I wanted someone to talk to anyway, you know. And um, now three in the morning, this guy calls up, same night. And he calls up, and he answers, and he goes, I want to get you the guy on TV. And he was mad. And I go, yeah. He goes, I goes, let me get something clear here. I don't believe in God, but I keep getting this dream that I'm supposed to call you and tell you what you're doing is important to God. And he slams the phone down, very upset. Now about seven in the morning, the phone rings and, um, and I get on there, I go, you don't want to buy a pillow, you want to pray. And she goes, well, how did you know? And I'm going, it seems to be the thing tonight, you know? And, and uh, she ended up buying a pillow though too, <laughs> but, but we, so we prayed. So that day I'm going, wow, you know, and I knew that this platform, then my sister called me up a week later. She says, you got to quit standing in front of semis and think that God's going to pick someone else for this. He, he chose you for some, for a big calling. My sister is telling me this and I'm going, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, I heard that last week, you know. <laughs> and, she, and she goes, you have a calling. And, this, and she said, this window's going to close and God's going to choose someone else. And you're, and, but then I'm kind of thinking, well, if I'm chosen for this, I can surely wait, you know. So I procrastinated through the year. And when, when we talk about bottom, for me, I wouldn't really have a money bottom because I've survived. You know, addicts are survivors. Any addicts that are out there, addictions are so, there's a lot of work. They're so hard to maintain them to hide your addiction, to get enough to make money, to get your drugs. I mean, there's just so, it's a lot of work. And most addicts are very smart. They're gonna get what they want. And when we come back, we're gonna hear the rest of this remarkable story. And I just love the line that I, I never got into this thing to make millions out of it, Mike Lindell said. I thought I'm going to help millions of people. And That's a big difference, he said, and it is. 
And of course, we've heard that from so many of our American dreamers. And that's where money comes from in this great country. When you help other people, they pay you for the service voluntarily. And then, of course, the faith element of this story is equally impressive, maybe even more. And you're going to hear the rest of this story, and it just keeps getting better, folks. Our American Dreamers segment, Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. Now let's return to the final portion of our American Dreamer series, Mike Lendell's story, the founder of MyPillow. It would get to December of 2008, and an interesting thing happened. My friend that had quit for three years, his name is Dick, and he was the first guy I ever did cocaine with in 1984. But he had been free of everything and had found Jesus for three years, and I hadn't seen him for a year. He used to be one of my dealers, all right? And now he's the only guy on the planet. You know, I've been to treatment centers and stuff through my life for different things, gambling, uh, drugs, alcohol, to get my license back. And he's the only one that could have came there where I could ask him questions where I would respect the answer because he's been there. Well, anyway, here comes Dick, and he walks in the door. He says, I said, Dick, what are you doing here? He says, God sent me out here. He says, what's going on? And I'm going, well, as long as you're here, I got a few questions for you. One of the first things I asked him is, is it boring? And that was a big question on addicts because a lot of addicts think with addictions, it's, it's because you're bored. It's not, you're hiding pain. You're hiding pain and you're doing it, you know, you're all that, whatever you're doing on the, for the high, it's just masking the pain. So I was very concerned about, is it boring? Then he left, that was in December of 08. Now, on January 16, 2009, I sat there and I'm going, okay, it was just like they used to have black and white TVs. When you turned them off, there'd be that little tiny dot and you turned it back on before that dot went out, right? And, and in my mind, I just knew that if I waited one more day, I, someone else would be chosen. And at the same time, I thought, you know what? This is going to help so many people because this is going to be, God's going to show the best comeback or the best with God all things are possible ever this story this story is going to be an amazing story I actually thought that the day I quit and so I prayed I said God I want to wake up in the morning and free me from all these addictions I don't ever want to feel them that you know the desire free me from the desire and uh, I said then I'm all yours I'll do this platform that was my thing so I'll do this you know whatever you want me to do so I wake up in the morning and it's gone it was a piece it was like wow I didn't have any money. I told my friends and family, let's all pool our money and do this infomercial dream I had. If nobody's gonna take my pillow, let's bring it right to the people. 
And I didn't know that infomercials don't work. It's just to get in box stores. You don't make money on the front end, but I nobody told me that. It's like an old Gilligan's Island episode. When Gilligan's up flying and the skipper goes, Gilligan, get down here, you can't fly. And Gilligan says, I can't, and he crashed to the ground. He was flying just fine until somebody told him he couldn't do it. Well, nobody told me I couldn't make this infomercial and couldn't make it, you know, amazing. In my head, I'm going, this is going to be the biggest ever. I'm telling my friends and family. Mike says that in a dream, there were specific numbers about this hypothetical infomercial success that came to him. I'm going to go to a million dollars a week or two million overnight. A wild success for something that pretty much was at nothing. But here we go. And someone introduced him to a so-called expert. I said, I have this dream in this infomercial with just a real audience. And I didn't want to be in. I didn't want to be in TV. I said, maybe somebody do it like we do at home shows. You know, just make it real. And she goes, no, you need an actor. And she says, then they wrote a script. The phones are lighting up like Christmas trees. I wanted to throw up. I said, this is not what I want. And she goes, I'm a professional and all this. But now the money kept going down. Almost all the money we had got from my friends and family that everyone put their life and just believe in me was almost, we were running out, we didn't even have anything. So, divine appointment, I met this other guy, so he's gonna do this infomercial. Well, it turned out I was gonna do it because he had seen so much passion, this guy says, you need to do it. Then all of a sudden they had wrote this script and I went to read it, they had this big professional guy had come in and he's sitting there and he's listening to me read off this script and then her and he goes, this is the worst disaster ever. This guy is terrible, okay, being me, you know. This is, it's, they didn't know what to do, so they, they decided they would go with no teleprompter. That Mike would try ad-libbing the whole infomercial. It will also become a hard surface, and it's no good. <laughs> what about this one? This one here is Ruined America. Um, oh my God. So we go in there to film it, and I was so scared. But once again, I got behind that counter, and it was like a shield between me and the audience where I come, my comfort zone, and I just went naturally or whatever. Now on October 7, 2011, I'm living in my sister's basement, and, and this aired at three in the morning, and all of a sudden this half-hour infomercial comes on, and I'm going, wow. I'm watching myself, you know, usually I would get so uncomfortable, but I'm going, I hadn't seen it yet. I had not seen it, I had not, I couldn't watch it, so this is the first time I watched it. And it was surreal. And it wasn't like, ooh, I'm on TV. It was like, wow, this is like divine. Wherever you set that, you get exactly what you need for your individual neck support, yep. okay? You can turn this any way you want. You can make little balloon animals out if you want. Okay, it's going to hold. It takes six pounds of pressure to hold that. It was just all natural. That It was like, it was real. It was what I wanted. I didn't want it to be a cookie cutter, you know, infomercial and we exploded. We went from five employees to 500 in 40 days. We were hiring people as fast as we could. We were working out of a little schoolhouse. We made our own call center because I, I had trained a call center in Connecticut. I had trained them because I take customer service so seriously. I called on the second day. I said, yeah, what's in that pillow? The guy goes, I don't know, Google it. I fired him on the spot. I was so upset. and. And we made our own call center in a little schoolhouse. We put everybody, my friends, everybody came in and we took phones through the night. 
And I look back now and I say, everybody got their pillows in time for Christmas. I mean, we, we were making them, hiring people, teaching them how to sew. Can you sew? Yeah, here. They go, Mike, you need to be CEO. I go, that sounds horrible. Don't they just take money? And then I, and then I go, we need an HR department. I go, that really sounds bad. I mean, all these things, I just wanted to make pillows, you know? And we took in millions of dollars over the next six months. But the experts continued to tell him that his way was stupid. They're going, did you make this ad? This is this is terrible. Did you write this yourself? We can do so much better, blah, blah, blah. And uh, now it's the number one ad in history. I look it up. I'll put it up against any ad ever. Mike's ad-libbed infomercials that the American people have responded to because he's genuine and real are now selling over 75,000 MyPillow products a day. And people said, oh, Mike, you can't make a pillow here in the United States. you got to make it overseas. I said, no, you're never going to get a patent on a pillow. And all these naysayers, and I fought every single thing. It was a constant fight. And the infomercial finally fatigued. And when it did fatigue in the summer of 14, I thought, you know, it's over. I mean, it was just scary. We were, we were within two days of going under. Uh, during that time, and I, I had fell away from God. I didn't, uh, I mean, I was like, when I took in all that money, I'm going, wow, this is, you know, I kind of kind of forgot about the platform that he had given me, and everything started to just dry up, okay? And in the summer of 14, I met Kendra. And I noticed something with her that she had that I didn't have. It was, it was like this relationship with Jesus. And I wanted that. I really wanted that relationship or whatever she had. And on February 18th, 2017 is when Jesus showed up and I had this personal relationship now. I'm going, wow, now I have what Kendra has. Now I'm doing speaking all over the country where I have the same passion for the pillow as now I have for Jesus. And that's powerful. Why did the relationship finally come on this particular day. Operation Restored Warrior is actually for veterans. You go there, it's a five-day thing where you're, uh, you give your life to Jesus. And, you know, I was invited, like, you know, I'm not a veteran, and I'm going, why? But they all prayed, and we're going to invite, we want, you know, God told them that we want Mike Lindell to come to this. And here I'm there, I'm going, I'm not, what am I doing here with these veterans? You know, these guys have stories that are 10 times worse than any story I have or any wounds. The wounds I heard there in their heart, and Jesus showed up. I mean, I can't even tell you, it was the most divine. I'm walking out of there, I'm going, wow, this is what I was missing. This personal relationship where you're walking with him instead of just, you know, okay, I'm going to go to church and believe in God. And, you know, before all those times now I look back, all these chapters and all these things of my life, for me, it took all these things because I'm going, this doesn't happen unless it's of God. That the troubled son of divorced parents, the crack addict, the twice divorced father, the near bankruptcies, all of these trials and tribulations must have happened for a reason. That the odds of someone with this story selling 75,000 pillow products a day, meeting with the President of the United States in the White House, and sharing his Christian faith 
before a crowd of over 60,000 in an NFL stadium after a life of fearing public speaking. This could have only happened for one reason and by one man. God's blessed me with this company. That ain't Mike Lindell. And what a great story about entrepreneurship and faith molded into one. Our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. We've done dozens of these American Dreamers series. This may be one of the best. Mike Lindell's story, my pillow story, here on Our American Stories. our American story and some of our favorite stories are of Americans driven to undertake utterly unreasonable quests. Folks who push themselves because they couldn't bear to have it any other way. And today, we're talking with Dean Carnassus, otherwise known as Ultra Marathon Man, one of Time's top 100 most influential people in the world, and a New York Times best-selling author. Dean's claim to fame is doing things like covering 350 miles in 80 hours and 44 minutes of sleepless running, or traveling 50 states in 50 days and running a marathon each of those days. And you know those 200-mile relay races that teams of 12 take on? Well, this guy runs those solo. Dean has also written multiple books, including Ultra Marathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, The Road to Sparta, Reliving the Ancient Battle, an epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> I'm exhausted just listening to that introduction. I think you need to take a run. <laughs> well, Dean, I have a beer, yeah. I have a beer and run. Yeah. <laughs> hey, before we get into your running and other accomplishments, we love to talk to almost everybody who walks through this door of our interview process. Where were you born? Tell us about your parents and what are the things in childhood that you think shaped you to become the guy you are today? I was born in Los Angeles. So California, born and raised. Uh, I'm 100% Greek, so I'm from uh, uh, Greek grandparents. Um, I remember running home from kindergarten when I was six years old. Uh, I was the oldest child, and when we had my, my youngest sister, uh, so we've got a, I've got a brother who's a little bit younger than me, and then my sister. I remember my mom was having a hard time getting me home from school, and my dad was working two jobs. So I just said, Mom, you don't have to worry about getting me home. And she said, well, how are you going to get home? And I said, well, I'm just going to run home. <laughs> and I remember really enjoying running. I remember sitting in the classroom uh, just waiting for the bell to ring. You know, what young kid, especially a boy, wants to sit still and pay attention. I mean, a young boy wants to run around and go wild, and I just remember sitting there in that classroom just, you know, counting down the moments until the bell rang and then running home. Dean, I still don't want to sit still and pay attention, so you know, it's, I, I think that's just all of us. <laughs> We're both alike, yeah. <laughs> and so tell me this. You, you, you then start to, I guess, do what all boys do, 
which is increase the challenge. Just step it up a little bit more. Talk about how that happened, increasing your distances as a kid. Well, there's this idea of never stop exploring, and in running, it's very symbolic. You know, I ran, uh, I ran a marathon when I was 14 years old, so that's, you know, 26.2 miles, and I thought maybe that was the furthest that anyone could ever run, uh, and then I heard about people running further than that, and I, I couldn't believe it. I heard about a 50-mile foot race, and I thought, that's impossible. A human being can't run continuously for 50 miles. I've got to try it. <laughs> So I signed up and I ran 50 miles. And, you know, at the 50-mile race, they said, wow, congratulations, you qualified. And I'm thinking, qualified for what, for the insane asylum? And they said, no, you qualified for the Western State's 100-mile endurance run. And I could not wrap my head around the idea of someone running 100 miles nonstop. I thought, you know, there's got to be campsites along the way. You know, how many days does it take? And they said, no, the starting gun goes off and you run as though you're running you know, a mile race around the track. You just run for 24 hours nonstop. And, I, and that just was, so, it was such an expansive idea to me that a human being could accomplish something like this. And, and then when I was that human being, it was so empowering. I thought, what else is out there? And I learned about a 135-mile foot race across Death Valley in the middle of summer. So not only is it the most extreme running, it was, you know, the most extreme temperatures on Earth. And I thought, that's crazy. A human being could never survive in these conditions. i got to try it. And I, and I finished that race. It's called the Badwater Ultramarathon. And I just kept finding these, these new and different and more extreme and intense challenges to keep pushing the envelope to see how far I could go. And that's kind of how I <laughs> stumbled into it, if you will. And I think, you know, we had done an hour with David McCullough on the Wright Brothers. And it just mm-hmm. turns out these guys weren't in it for the money. They weren't in it for the fame. They just wanted to get up there and give it a shot and, and, and fly. And it was a hobby for them. It, they were tinkering for them. And I think this cut to that American spirit, what you're doing, Dean. I mean, it, it, to some it would say, well, wow, how, how odd. And I go, no, how American? Because we Americans do this all the time. Uh, well, you know, and let's face it, how much exploration is left on planet Earth? I mean, and when it comes to physical endeavors, I mean, I know we have folks like Elon Musk and, and you know, SpaceX, uh, missions to Mars and things like that. But as far as, you know, scaling the highest mountain on Earth or, you know, crossing the, the, the largest desert, it's all kind of been done. Yep. So now it's, you know, how do you do the most intense thing possible? And that's kind of been, you know, my driving spirit. And, and you're right, I, I do it because I love it. I, it's it's you know <laughs> what do you get when you finish one of these races you know you get, you might get a, a medal or a trophy i mean there's not a lot of cash purses involved in these but i just love the challenge of of you know of of, of actually bettering yourself and that's what it comes down to it's you know can you um you know can you push through perceived limitations and unlock something that's greater than that you know, you're just testing your own limits. You want to know what you can do or can't do in the end, Dean, and your challenges. It's just your own personal challenge. In the end. You don't feel like you're racing against other people or clocking against other people in your endeavors, do you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm certainly competitive in certain elements, but I think I'm competing more with myself than anyone else. So I think at the end of the day, um, the only time I feel like I failed is when I haven't given it my all. Uh, a lot of these races I do, it's it's more about survival. <laughs> you know, you might be racing someone for 50 miles in a 100 mile foot race, but the last 50 miles, you're you know you're 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 rooting for the other guy as he's rooting for you because it it is really uh, just about survival more than anything else.
What led you to go for the 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states? I didn't even know that was possible. I didn't know there were 50 marathons. Yeah, no, a guy told me he was part of this 50 marathon club, and I thought, wow, what is this? And he said, I've run a marathon in every state of the union. And I said, how long did it take you? He said, well, I've been working on it for 10 and a half years. And I thought, wow, I'd love to do this, but I, I want to see. <laughs> I don't have 10 and a half years. I don't know if I'll be alive in 10 and a half years. So I thought, what an ultimate road trip is to go out and, and see the country and, and run while you're out there. See the country at you know eight miles an hour. That's the best way to see it. And when we come back, more with Dean Carnassus, the ultra marathon man. And Dean is a writer, a raconteur. And we're going to continue with our conversation after these messages. Dean Carnassus' story here on Our American Stories. And we return to our conversation with ultramarathon man, Dean Carnassus. And, and by the way, Dean, before we go on, you know, one of the things we're going to start to do on this show is look at different ethnic groups that come into this country. And it's a tabula rosa when you get here. I mean, when the Italians came here, they got called names. When the Greeks came here, they got called names. The Puerto Ricans came here. The Irish came here. But in the end, we all just sort of merged into a giant melting pot. And what's been remarkable as I've looked at what I call ethnic America is how different groups did when they came here. And the Greeks were fierce entrepreneurs and real risk takers. Talk about a little of that Greek DNA, because we are where we were born, not entirely, but it has an influence on us. Talk about um, being Greek and what that's meant to you. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, It's been said that, you know, that that no other... No other culture struggles so much under the weight of their collective narrative than the Greeks. Uh, let's face it, you know, we're under a lot of pressure. I mean, we've got Plato, Socrates, Plutarch, you know, Herodotus, uh, Homer. Um, you know, how do you live up uh, to, to, to those sort of expectations? I think a lot of Greeks have, have just quietly um, done remarkable things. Um, they haven't been boastful. They've, been, they've maintained a, a real element of humility. Yep. And there's always been this entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, uh, Greeks are very independent. Um, even the, you know, the early Greek city-states of Sparta and Athens and Corinth, uh, they were very independent, um, almost separate nations of a sort. But they all colluded and all kind of used best practices uh, to better themselves. And I think the Greeks... You know, the Greeks have said, we can't turn anywhere else. I mean, we're kind of, we've got to help ourselves. They've been very self-reliant is, is one quality that I've seen with Greeks. And, um, you know, we're, we're a, a definitely a minority. I, I think that uh, Greek Americans make up um, something less than, you know, half a percent of the U.S. population. But um, per capita, there are more Greek PhDs than any other class. And it's millionaires as well. There are more Greek millionaires than any other ethnic group. And this is, again, per capita. It's a right. very small small base of people. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I'm Lebanese, and, and we're a little behind the Greeks, but here's a group of people that come into this country. And I got to tell you, Dean, not many people. I got made fun of a lot. It didn't bother me because my parents said, I oh, don't worry about it. You know, for every person that made fun of you, there's 10 people who will love you. And I found that true to, to, to the uh, nature of the American experiment. And the American people, they're really generous. They wanted to try out my foods, the family foods, and they were deeply curious. And that one knucklehead in the crowd, you just had to learn to ignore him and get on with the rest of your life. <laughs> And that's just how- I've got Lebanese friends. I know what you're talking about. They're they one knuckle. They're funny people. Really great people. Yeah, yeah, we always just say let's just turn something really ugly into something funny. Yeah, um, we life's short. So let's talk back to that 50 marathons in 50 days in 50 states. You you started in St. Louis on September 17th, 2006 with the Lewis and Clark Marathon. You ended on November 5th, 2006 with the New York City Marathon. Uh, talk about some highlights. Some lowlights, too, Dean, because there have got to be moments, even inside you, where you're going, what was I thinking? <laughs> Plenty of those moments. Uh, but, you know, it was, a, it was great exploration. I mean, it was, uh, for, for one, you know, just for the listeners to explain how I did this, I had a, a big school bus, and my mom is a retired public school teacher, so I brought my kids along. I had two, my daughter and my son, they were young at the point, and my mom would road school them, so she'd basically homeschool them as we're driving around the country for 50 days. Their schools were sending them the lesson plans, emailing them to my mom every Sunday night, and she'd teach the lesson throughout the week. And we all of a sudden became like the a, a, a kind of this traveling um, road show where all of my kids' friends from school were so curious, you know, what were the experiences they were having. And then their parents learned about it. So now all their parents were following us. And people started learning about what I was doing, and they were coming out like, We'd have 50, 60 people show up at the starting line of a race in Iowa on Tuesday morning. <laughs> That's great. And, and yeah, no, and marathoners were flying from Alaska. A guy came in from Japan to run with me. They heard about this, and it just was like this brotherhood that can sisterhood that came together. Um, so that was the you know the the really uh, poignant and, and beautiful moments. You know, some of the low moments were. I remember running a, a marathon in Alaska, and it was snowing and cold. And the next day I was in Arizona, and it was about 105 degrees, running through the desert. And I remember finishing the race thinking, this is marathon 19. I can barely walk. <laughs> you know, how am I going to get out of bed tomorrow morning and run a marathon, let alone, you know, 30 more after that? So there were some moments where I really doubted I could do it. Um, and just, you know, kept that American spirit. Just said, you know, when I get out of bed in the morning, I would say, don't think about running a marathon. Just get to the sink, you know, the bathroom, and splash some water in your face. You know, okay, that's great. Just just put on your shorts, you know, one leg at a time. Okay, lace up your shoes. Okay, get out the door. <laughs> get to the starting line. Okay, just start running. Just put one foot in front of the other. Uh, so it became, at points, a very uh, uh, cerebral challenge as well as a physical one. Yeah, I would assume that. You know, I, I've gotten into Mike Krzyzewski's life, and he has this saying for all the young guys on the court, and it's not... Anything else but these two simple words, next play, not the play before, and not three plays, five plays, the next game, or the NCAA finals, just next play. And so many of the kids and and, and athletes who played under his tutelage talk about how that helped them focus on just the next activity in front of you. Life didn't become as intimidating that way. Well, and it's more approachable. You're right. Um, it, with running, you know, it gets very grand. I just say, you know, instead of next play, it's next step. Yep. Next step. 
next step? Because you tend to look at the mile markers, especially during a marathon. You know, you might be at mile, you might see a mile marker that says mile 18, which means, you know, you basically have over eight miles to go. And, you know, you might be cramping at that point. You know, you might just be completely exhausted. It's demoralizing. It's a heavy weight on your shoulders to think, how am I going to run another eight miles on top of what I've done? Don't do that. I just say next step. Put the blinders on about the future. Don't reflect on the past. Just be in the present moment, in the now. Next step. Next step. So I really, I can relate to that next play mentality. Yeah, and it's a great thing for life, I think, how to stay in the moment and not get overwhelmed by the exigencies of life, which can easily overwhelm any of us if we look too far down the road or too far back into the past. It, it can be paralyzing. Let's talk about this cross-country road trip because, my goodness, we've talked to one person who's biked across the country for Dave, uh, Dave Thomas's foundation. He's a Wendy's franchisee who said, my goodness, I want to raise some money for kids. And so he, he, rode, he rode across the country on a bicycle, and we followed him along. What was jogging across the country like? And by the way, what did you learn about your country when you did this and that 50-day in 50-state uh, adventure? And what did your family learn? Well, you know, I, I learned we're, we're a very diverse country. I mean, you, you, you hear this said all the time, and it's almost cliche, but the regional differences, um, not just with the food and, you know, the dialect, but with philosophy and the way you approach life is so varied as you run across the country. Um, but the one, the one, you know, the the one uniting thing is that we're all free and we're all freedom-loving people. So the support I got along the way was remarkable. It was almost like Forrest Gump. I mean, some days I'd be running and there'd be forty or fifty people running with me, you know, on a remote highway <laughs> out in the, you know, out in the desert. Uh, I remember running over the Rockies in a snowstorm. And people showing up on the side of the road with hot chocolate. So, we, you know, I, I learned that running can transcend our differences and bring people together. I mean, there's so many things in this world that, that divide us, right? Be it, you know, our political beliefs, the color of our skin, the God we worship, whatever. Uh, when I was out there running uh, and people were running with me, it's a commonality. All of us humans share, and it brought us together, regardless of, you know, the food we ate, um, you know, the accent we had. So uh, it was really beautiful, you know, seeing the, the support of people that came out. And I'm not talking about elite runners, some elite runners, but some people just coming out to run a mile or two by my side. Yep. And, I, and by the way, what's so interesting to me, I had a dear friend of mine, this Italian guy who was one of my mentors, and he said, you know, if you can do these three things a lot, you're going to have a happy life. Play sports a lot because you're not talking. Dance a lot because you're not talking. And, and last but not least, and this was just, he said, love a lot because then you're not talking. And if you're loving, you're not talking. And, I'll go with the latter. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll go with the latter, too. But when we come back, and I think that's what's transcendental, is you're running with people, and you're not going to get them in an argument. You're running together. You might chat a little bit, but there's something about just running together, just throwing a ball with your kid. You don't have to talk. Throw the ball. It's just the movement, the, the, the movement back. It's just a beautiful thing, as is dancing. When we come back, more with ultramarathon man Dean Carnassus. This is Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do here, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and we're talking to Dean Carnassus, the ultramarathon man, who's also written some books, Ultramarathon Man, Confessions of an All-Night Runner, and his latest, which we'll talk about in a moment, The Road to Sparta, reliving the ancient battle and epic run that inspired the world's greatest foot race. And Dean, before we do that, just a couple of basic questions. I know the audience is thinking, how do you train for this stuff? And how do you avoid knee injuries, foot injuries, and just all around hurting? Well, you know, how do you train for this stuff? <clears throat> you do a lot of it. So, uh, for instance, a couple of days ago on Sunday, there was a, I live in San Francisco. There was a marathon in Oakland. I, got a, I just signed up and ran the marathon, just kind of spur of the moment. So you do a lot of, of running. And I also do a lot of cross-training to avoid those issues you just talked about, to avoid knee issues and, you know, those little niggling um, joint pains. Uh, when I say cross-training, I mean what's called high-intensity interval training, so HIIT training. Uh, throughout the course of the day, I'm constantly doing sets of push-ups. I've got a pull-up bar in my office, pull-ups, sit-ups, uh, burpees, constantly moving. Uh, even now, as I'm doing this interview, I'm, I'm walking around the room. I'm standing up. Uh, I write all my books standing up. I never sit down. I bounce around on my toes as I'm writing. So my whole life is built around physical movement. I see life as training and training as life. And I think that people that just run, um, it's kind of a recipe for injury, overuse injury. So I always encourage people to mix it up. And I also encourage people to look at their entire life through the lens of an athlete. Everything I do is to be the best animal Dean can be. So that has to do with my diet, my cross-training, my actual training, my sleep patterns, and it also has to do with interpersonal relationships. Uh, let's face it, if you, you know, if, you, if you don't have a good, solid foundation with your family, uh, that puts a lot of stress on you, yep. and you don't perform at your best. So I really look at my life as, you know, how can I be the best possible athlete as, possible, you know, as I can and do everything um, with that lens. And, in, you know, so often I'll talk to athletes, and we did an hour on West Point, just the institution, because it had produced so many great leaders, military and otherwise, uh, NASA, NASA exploits from West Point, uh, unheralded, and even sports. You know, Mike Krzyzewski was a point guard at, uh, at West Point. His coach, a very young Bobby Knight. Go figure. And, <laughs> and it's just incredible. T t tell me this. In mind, body, and spirit, what is there that you do on that spirit side? Is there a part of that uh, equation that you pay attention to as well, Dean? Well, I mean, I think that's, <laughs> that's my running. Um, that, you know, that's where I find my God, if you will. Yep. Um, running is a – I'm, I'm an introvert, um, you know, just by nature. So running to me – and if you saw where I ran up in the hills um, north of San Francisco, uh, it's, it's a beautiful setting. Um, I'm out by myself. I actually have a very close relationship with nature. I'm almost more comfortable running in nature than I am in groups of people. In fact, I am more comfortable. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, that's, that's something that's been lost um, as we've evolved as a species, is we've lost this relationship with the outdoors, with nature. And to me, that's, you know, that, that's part of the human experience. And it, was, it makes me feel spiritually uh, enlivened is when I'm outside running through the hills um, and, you know, it, it, unfortunately, a lot of people uh, in the industrialized world just don't have uh, access to that experience. Yep. It, you know, they live in cities that are so built up. But I would encourage folks to try their best, you know, even on the weekends, to get somewhere wild and just, you know, immerse yourself in the grandness of, of this planet of ours. Indeed. And by the way, we, Reader's Digest did a, did a long piece on the health and wellness of people 
who take long walks or exercise in and around nature. And it was remarkable what the findings were, Dean. It's not surprising to me. We broadcast just south of Memphis. And when you draw a circle around Memphis, around 200 you know, miles or so, you're going to find almost all the great American musicians and writers came from this area in the area of music. It's remarkable. And it's these wide open spaces and this peace of mind and having to fill up your own space. Well, I know. I, you know, it's, it's ironically, um, I, I've written all of my books. So I've written four books now. I write all of them when I'm running because I have some of my most clearest thoughts uh, when I'm out by myself running. And so I carry a digital recorder with me, and I just dictate in, into this as I'm running, and then, and then I type up my notes. And, you know, even Nietzsche said the only, you know, the, the only real thoughts are those that occur while you're moving. <laughs> and, I, you know, so I, I can completely relate to what you're saying there. Oh, it's so it's so true. And and talk to us about the diet thing, because you had said, you know, eating really was a, a fundamental part of you and your performance. And so talk about that, uh, that, that, that regiment that you go through and what you eat and what you don't eat and why. Yeah, so I've, I've really refined my diet over the years and I've kind of self-selected on um, those foods that leave me with the most energy and feeling the best. Um, I eat more of those foods that, you know, leave me feeling lethargic and, you know, kind of drag me down. I've cut from my diet and I've basically arrived at a place where I eat no processed food. Nothing that, that has to go through a machine or be refined. So um, I don't need any grains like rice or oats or wheat. Uh, I basically eat as though I was a Neanderthal man. Um, if I can't pick it from a tree, pull it from the earth, or catch it with your hands, I really don't eat it. So it's, it's just, you know, they call it a paleo diet. Um, that said, I don't cook a lot of my food either. So it's kind of a raw paleo diet. And the amount of energy I have, I mean, I can... I can go nonstop throughout the day uh, without ever experiencing a, a loss of energy. So I think that uh, that dietary shift has really helped in everything I do. This, you know, Jack LaLanne, you must know Jack LaLanne. Sure, yep. Yeah, he said, uh, if man makes it, don't eat it. And if it tastes good, spit it out. <laughs> not, not bad advice. And let's talk about The Road to Sparta, uh, because this, I, I assume, is your most personal book. Dean, um, why did you write it? And talk about the book, if you can. Yeah, well, The Road to Sparta is, you're right, it's, it's a very personal journey, and it's about the original marathon and the, the Greek runner Phidipides, or Phidipides, that ran the marathon. And uh, it's, a, it's basically a history book as well. So, uh, you know, ironically, right now the book is it's number one on Amazon in the category of Greek history. And I'm not a historian, but I delve very deeply into the history of, of ancient Greece and the evolution of running and marathoning. I also learned a lot about my identity, and I think this gets back to what you talked about, um, you know, being uh, Lebanese and wanting to know more of where you came from. So I actually went back to Greece to the very village my grandfather came from and his grandfather and his grandfather before him and discovered a lot about, you know, what I'm all about and how I became who I am and where my people came from. And that, to me, was fascinating. I think that's something that, that you know, we look at the, the popularity of things like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, you know, the genetic test that can tell you where your ancestors came from. Not only did I learn where my ancestors came from, I visited these places and saw exactly how they lived, you know, generations ago. And that was really fascinating. And I write about all this in the book. You know, there's one point in time where you say at the start, 
I was surrounded by 350 warriors huddled in the pre-dawn mist at the foot of the Acropolis of Athens. For me, the quest was deeply personal. I had been waiting a lifetime to be standing in this place. I would finally run alongside my ancient brother. Close out with us those words. Who was that ancient brother? You just mentioned him. And that feeling running and starting to run by the Acropolis. Yeah, so that ancient brother, was his name was Pheidippides, and he was part of a class of people called Hemodromi. They were professional day-long runners. They were foot heralds, foot messengers. And his mission was to, when the Persians invaded Greece at the Bay of Marathon, the Athenians said, we need to recruit the Spartans to help us. We need reinforcements. We're badly outnumbered. They dispatched this, this man, Pheidippides, to run 153 miles nonstop to Sparta to recruit the Spartans to battle. And it was because of his heroic undertaking and his mission that democracy is what it is today. I mean, he basically saved democracy. Greece was the first democratic state, and the Persians wanted to crush him. Had he not succeeded in running 153 miles to recruit the Spartans, our lives would be very much different. And to me, that's, it's, it was incredible to retrace those footsteps and to do it um, myself 2,500 years later. And that's what we love doing here on Our American Stories, digging into the story of the people we have on. And my goodness, that sounds like the Paul Revere story without the horse. And my goodness, what a big one. Dean Carnassus, ultramarathon man, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for the story of a song. We brought you There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Light My Fire by The Doors, Gimme Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, sign up for our podcasts. Hundreds and hundreds of hours of great American storytelling. And now, the story behind the song, The House of the Rising Sun. Here's Jesse. I was on assignment in New Orleans, walking towards Bourbon Street, when I heard a grisly voice yelling at me from across the street. Hey, you! Do you know where you're standing? A disheveled transient yelled. I was petrified. Rather than say anything, I simply shook my head with my mouth open, thinking I was about to get robbed or shanked or both. His words echoed down the street, sending a shiver up my spine. I looked up at the bright white three-story building gleaming in the morning sun. Could this be the place? I had completely forgotten it was here. It's almost as if it found me. Like many classic folk ballads, The House of the Rising Sun is of uncertain authorship. And it turns out that this is one of several possible locations for the legendary Bordello. The oldest published version of the lyrics is that printed by Robert Winslow Gordon in 1925 in a column titled Old Songs That Men Have Sung in Adventure Magazine. The oldest known recording of the song under the title Rising Sun Blues is by Appalachian artists Clarence Tom Ashley and Gwen Foster. 
who recorded it on September 6th of 1933. It's a song that's been covered from artists like Dolly Parton to Nina Simone, Waylon Jennings to Joan Baez. Bob Dylan liked the song so much that he recorded it on his first album in 1962. There is a house down in New Orleans They call the rising sun Now, the release had no songwriting credit, but the liner notes indicate that Dylan learned this version of the song from Dave Van Ronk. Here's Bob Dylan and Dave Van Ronk from the documentary No Direction Home. The House of the Rising Sun is on that record. I'd never done that song before, but I heard it every night because Van Ronk would do it. So, you know, I thought he was really onto something with the song, so I just recorded it. Bobby picked up the chord changes for the song. For me, it really altered the song considerably, although the lyric was pretty much the straight house of the rising sun lyric, and so was the melody. And when he was doing, I guess it was his first album, he asked me if I would mind if, I, you know, if he recorded my version of House of the Rising Sun. And I had some plans to record it, so I said, well, gee, Bob, I'd rather you didn't because I'm going to record it myself soon. And Bobby said, uh-oh. The mystery of being in a recording studio did something to me, and those are the songs that came out. Now the only thing a gambler needs is a and a trunk. After he recorded it, I had to stop singing the song because people were constantly uh, accusing me of having got the song from Bobby's record. Now that was very, very annoying. But I couldn't blame that on him, and I, I didn't. The whole thing was a tempest in a teapot. Later on, when Eric Burden and the Animals picked the song up from Bobby and recorded it, Bobby told me that he had had to drop the song because everybody was accusing him of ripping it off from Eric Burden. <laughs> that version from the Animals was the most successful commercial version to date, recorded in 1964 in just one take. It was a number one hit in the UK, US, and France. Oh, mother, tell your children When Bob Dylan first heard the Animals version on his car radio, he stopped to listen, jumped out of the car, and began banging his fists on the hood. This was the sound that made Bob Dylan switch from an acoustic guitar to an electric. Yeah, put on the train. 
Various places in New Orleans have been proposed as the inspiration for the song with varying plausibility. The phrase House of the Rising Sun is often understood as a euphemism for a brothel, but it's not known whether or not the house described in the lyrics was an actual or a fictitious place. One theory is that the song is about a woman who killed her father, an alcoholic gambler, who had beaten his wife. Therefore, the House of the Rising Sun might be a jailhouse from which one would be the first to see the sunrise. An idea supported by the lyric mentioning a ball and chain, but that phrase has been slang for marital relationships for at least as long as the song has been in print. Because women often sang the song, another theory is that the House of the Rising Sun was where prostitutes were detained while treated for syphilis, since cures with mercury were ineffective. Going back was very unlikely. There are many places that could be the legendary House of the Rising Sun. One possible location was a small hotel in the French Quarter that burned down in 1822. Another possibility is the Rising Sun Hall, listed in the 19th century city directions which no longer exist. And another possible location is here, at 826 St. Louis Street in the French Quarter. Between 1862 and 1874, and it was a house of ill repute, run by a Madame Marianne Lesolie Levant. Whose surname means the rising sun in French. Here's the platters from 1 And then there are some that say the building is just part of our imagination, a symbol of sin and misery in the house of the rising sun. Or to paraphrase Freud, sometimes lyrics are just lyrics. Here's Waylon Jennings. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. There is a house down in New They call the rising sun And it's been the ruin For many poor boy And me, oh God, I'm one She sewed these old blue jeans My father was a gambler 
a gambling ease Is a suitcase and a trunk And the only time he's ever satisfied Is when he's on a drunk Oh, oh, oh.